Chapter Four of the Smoke Eaters by Harvey J. O'Higgins. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Private Morphy's Romance. The hook and ladder truck of Company Number Zero, with plunging horses and a furious bell, came struggling through the frozen slush of the dark side street shot out into the cleaner avenue, and slewed and slid wildly on the icy asphalt as it turned the circle of the corner light. "'Skatin's good,' Sergeant Pym observed. Young Morphy, once of the Red Ink squad, was beside him, holding out from the step at arm's length and craning his long neck. Pym gripped and held him as the man on the tiller, bringing round the tail of the truck in the swing of a game of crack the whip, skidded the rear wheels into the car tracks with a lurch that would have thrown Morphy into the street. "'Want to break your crockery on the stones?' Pym grumbled. "'What's wrong with you?' From little fukes behind them there sounded a sarcastic snicker, and when the truck had straightened out for the gallop down the avenue, Pym looked over his shoulder for an explanation. Fuchs said, with a wink and a leer, "'The blaze is down where Kitty Slogan lives.' Now Pym knew that there had been a quarrel between Fuchs and Morphy, and he understood, too, that they had fought about a girl. But he had thought, from what he had heard of the truck-house gossip, that her name was Rosie, and he gathered now, from Fuchs's manner, that she was Kitty Slogan. He did not know that there had been two girls in the affair and that Fuchs had maliciously stirred up a jealousy between them, to the greater misery of young Morphy. Pym grunted and turned a disgusted back on this introduction of sentiment and a woman into the business of the fire department. It was like such young fools as Fuchs and Morphy to be mixing their girling with the serious affairs of life. He got their measure in a memory of himself, in his first uniform, walking the longest way home to his meals on days when the wind would show the red lining in his blue coat-tails, eyeing his shadow on the sidewalk before him, and kicking up the bottoms of his trouser-legs with a swagger as he strutted past the admiration of the petticoats of the quarter. Pish! Then Fuchs said, "'It's her corner, all right,' and Pym snorted hotly. "'Suppose it was her corner. Did that make any difference to them?' Their business was with the fire, not with any tow-headed Irish girl that might be in it. Morphy was hanging out from the step again, bending forward now, in an eagerness that seemed to find the progress of the truck too slow for him. Pym clapped a hand on his shoulder. "'Look here,' he said. "'You put your rubbers on and attend to business.' Morphy drew back in an abashed consciousness of his excitement and began to busy himself with the difficulties of getting into his rubber coat and of balancing himself at the same time against the lurches of the truck. "'And if I catch you going anywhere without orders,' Pym warned him, "'I'll report you to the old man. See?' Morphy waved a muffled arm through the tangle of his coat, but did not answer. Pym turned to Fuchs. "'That's for you, too,' he added. Fuchs laughed. "'I'm not doing any grandstand stunts.' "'See you don't,' Pym replied sourly, to have the last word, and swung out to look down the street. He could see the red brick fronts of a block of tenement houses glowing out of the darkness ahead, in the footlight glare of a blaze that was curling two tongues of flame out from the sashless lower windows, and licking in open insolence up the wall. 
A crowd in the street broke into a shout when they saw the truck. "'Old man Slogan has the fourth floor,' Fuchs said. Pym cursed at the headway the fire had gained. "'Cop asleep again,' he muttered. "'And there ain't a line o' hose here yet.' The driver began to draw in his horses. Captain Meaghan called, from his high place on the turntable, "'Get your twenty-footers ready, boys!' and they tossed back into the truck the hooks and axes with which they had been arming themselves and attacked their ladder-pins. Pym and Morphy unbuckled the life-net to free their twenty-footer, and heaved the half-moon of tarpaulin out on the sidewalk as the truck swerved into the curb with a grinding of brakes. They had their ladder down before the horses had stopped pawing and slipping on the gutter ice and they drove it through the sidewalk crowd with the aid of their fellows, and raised it beside the third-story window, out of the reach of the flames, while Captain Meaghan was still shouting behind them at the men that had manned the opposite side of the truck. Pym turned the neck-guard of his helmet over his face, and ran up the rungs, his head down, his shoulders high, into the heat. It was his work, and that of the man who followed, to break in the windows of the third floor and save the occupants of it, if there were any smothering in their sleep inside. Lieutenant Gallagher was scaling the other ladder to the same end. Captain Meaghan was running to the doorway with axe and lantern. Young Morphy, biting his lip at the foot of Pym's ladder, looked up at the sergeant, looked back at the truck where the axes were, and then darted away, empty-handed, after Captain Meaghan, and caught up to him at the door and Fuchs, grinning and mischievous, followed his victim. In the gaslight of the narrow hallway, a group of frightened women screamed and wept. Captain Meaghan charged into them with a shout that drove them back on Morphy, a frantic mother among them, screeching, "'Ach, Mr. Morphy, safe my Rosie, safe my Rosie!' caught at the private, and before he could get himself freed from her hysterical clutch, Fuchs and the captain were halfway up the stairs ahead of him. She was the mother of the Rosie of whom Pym had heard, and Fuchs looked back at Morphy with a grin which no smoke could hide. Morphy reddened and went after him, leaping up the steps. And then there rushed out upon the landing above them a young woman, barefooted and wrapped in a greatcoat, and at sight of her he stumbled and stopped short. It was Rosie. She gave a little squeal as she came, and threw herself fainting into the arms of the captain. But Meaghan had a veteran firefighter's knowledge of hysteria, and a practical, if somewhat rough, method of treating for it. He caught her by the collar of her coat, lifted her to her feet, and shook her back to her senses. "'Now you walk down those stairs,' he ordered, "'or I'll throw you down.' and he spoke in that angry blare of voice of which Pym has said that it would start an automobile out of a balk. She clutched the balustrade and sidled down past him, her face as if blurred of any intelligent expression by her fear, and her eyes goggled in a gaping stare at him. She looked at the shamefaced Morphy as she went by him, and he shrank back against the wall with a mutter of apology. If he had been in Captain Meaghan's place... Fuchs grinned down at them, chuckling in a malicious enjoyment of the situation, and Morphy sprang at him with an oath. It is certain that there would have been a fight between them there, 
but fuchs was the nimbler and he reached the dense smoke of the landing just as captain meaghan broke open a door and disappeared into the doorway with his lantern fuchs dodged in after him and morphy blinded by his anger ran at full tilt along the hallway to the foot of the next flight of stairs dashed past a flaming doorway and headed up toward the slogan flat the gas was burning dimly in the smoke there and the hall was empty he looked about him breathing heavily until with the sudden understanding that he had got ahead of the others he turned to leap up the last steps to the slogan door and beat a thunder of blows on it with his fist he got no answer he put his shoulder against the flimsy pine and tried to force the lock it gave but held him he stood back and butted his side into it with his full weight and the catch snapping unexpectedly he fell sprawling into the parlour beside a table on which an oil lamp was burning serenely in a home-like privacy and quiet there was a cry of fright from within he scrambled to his feet caught up the lamp and rushed into the next room with it and there kitty slogan sat up in bed the coverlet clutched to her chin screaming she stopped with a gasp when she recognized him and she flushed to the eyes he backed into the doorway putting up a hand to fumble off his helmet i i he said the the house is afire she steadied a fluttering breath thank you she replied in a voice that shook under a tone of icy politeness you could have told me that without scaring me to death he had expected her to behave as rosie had and he blinked stupidly at her in the sudden right-about of his hopes he wiped his forehead you'd better tell the folks he said my parents are not in mr morphy she replied her manner stopped him on the dead centre he could neither go forward nor get himself turned back he looked at her helplessly she said will you please get out of here a burst of smoke blowing in from below stairs made a blue halo around the light he put the lamp down meekly and went out his helmet in his hand but as soon as his eyes were off her a proper resentment of her treatment of him blazed up from the smoulder of fuchs's persecution and he clapped his hat on with a growl it was all fuchs's work the little catfish and that was all he was a catfish he was as black as one he had the grin of one he was barbed like one with a guinea moustache and he was as slippery and as low-down dirt-mean as one what business was it of his if this rosie had been making eyes at a fellow private around the gable of her nose as she went past the truck-house door and what but the lowest cussedness had prompted the little rat that day when he was on the desk and kitty slogan had come with a word for mr morphy had prompted him to call upstairs morphy morphy here's a message from rosie for ye of course she had demanded to know who rosie was darn him it had served him right that he had had his face punched for that morphy grasped the balustrade in the hall and leaned over to glower down the stairs in the hope that fuchs might be coming up alone he imagined his own big fist covering and eclipsing fuchs's broad grin in the blow that would meet him as he rose beaming on the landing and that mental picture was so vivid that for a moment it outshone the glare below 
a glare which leaped and lightened in a draught of burning gases that came flaming up the stairs with the crackling of a brushwood bonfire. He understood the situation, when the heat took him in the throat and nostrils, with a burning choke of suffocation. He jumped back, snorting the scorch from his nose, and he ran in for Kitty Slogan with a yell of, "'Stairs afire!' that was lost in the banging of the hall door as he flung it shut behind him. She screamed frantically, "'Go away, you! Go away!' and slammed the bedroom door in his face. "'Look here!' he called hoarsely, in the darkness. "'We got to get out of here! Quick!' She cried back, with that excess of coolness which had caused as many deaths by fire as the blindest fright. "'You can get out of here just as quick as you like!' "'Do you want to jump out of a fourth-story window?' he demanded. She did not answer. He heard her bustling about inside. "'You'll have to get a move on if you don't,' he said. She called out, on a high trembling note of defiance, "'Why ain't you looking after Rosie?' He took that retort, as he had taken the puff of heat over the balustrade, in a breath of indignation through the nose and he took it, too, as a proof that there was a peak and spirit in her that blocked his way as surely as the flame in the staircase. It was useless to argue with her. He turned back toward the front windows, stumbling with curses against the furniture. He reached a blind and tore it from its roller, savagely, and the glare from without leaped into the room, red and threatening. He threw up the sash and looked out. The house was three windows in width, and of the three directly below him, two were already in flames. The third was dark with smoke. It was to this last one that Pym's ladder had been raised, and Morphy knew that no ladder could remain there long. He shouted and ran back to the hall door. As soon as he opened it, the heat and flame struck him in his eyes like an explosion. He slammed it shut and dashed back to the bedroom. "'Come out of that!' he cried, breaking in on her. "'Unless you want—' She was buttoning the waist of her gown. She screamed, "'How dare you!' stamping on the floor. He tore a blanket off the bed and made to throw it about her. She struck at him with an open hand and dealt him a futile blow on the side of the head. But before she could make another movement, he smothered her in the blanket, spun her around in the entangling folds of it, pinned down her arms, and, stooping, drew her forward to fall, head down like a practiced dummy, over his shoulder. She screamed a muffled protest as he rose with her. He hitched her up on his shoulders as if she were a bag of oats. He came panting to the window. He shouted, "'Hi! Hi!' to Pym, who was clambering out of a third-story window in a cloud of smoke. Pym looked up. "'Who's that?' he called. Morphy shouted, "'Me! I'm cut off here, with a girl!' "'Huh! Serves you right,' Pym grunted. He raised his voice. "'Get over to this other window here,' he added to himself, "'and be darn quick about it,' for the fire was growing in the room which he had left. Morphy carried his struggling load through the door of a little room off the parlour, and found the third window. He fought with the tight sash of it, but he could not raise it with a single hand. He swore angrily at the girl, and swung his elbow into the pane to send it crashing down on Pym. At the same moment he heard the explosion of the fire in the room under his feet. He climbed out on the sill as quickly as he could. He was too late. 
The flames were so fierce in the window below him that Pim had been driven down from it. It was impossible to put up a scaling ladder through the blaze. It would be a neck-breaking leap from such a height for any but an expert in the use of the life-net. And before the extension ladder could be raised, the fire would be all around them. Pim shouted to the men in the street, "'Here, boys! Here, you! Push this ladder out from the bricks! Get your hooks and hold it steady!' Three of the men ran to get under the slant of the ladder and raise it out from the window, where three others braced the foot of it. Two with hooks propped it, as telegraph linemen prop the pole which they are raising. Pim climbed like an acrobat to the swaying top, twined a leg among the upper rungs, and looked up through the drift of heat and smoke. He threw down his helmet and peeled off his rubber coat. "'Now!' he called. "'Swing her out and drop her between me and the wall. Quick!' The noises in the street hushed to a trembling silence of throbbing steam-pumps. Morphy straddled the sill and swung her out limp. He held her a moment under the arms. He let her go, with a gasp. She fell, fluttering in her blanket, into the smoke. The head of the ladder sank into the flames and was sprung out at once by the men below. And then it was seen that Pym, catching her about the knees in a football tackle, had taken her weight on his shoulders and his back, and held her safe. The people in the street shouted and waved their arms as Pym came slowly down the ladder with her. A squad of men ran up with a life-net for Morphy, and he jumped and lit in it before the crowd had ceased its buzz of excited comment on the rescue of the girl, and looked to see what had become of him. He ran over to where Kitty Slogan stood, supported by two policemen, her hand to her forehead. "'Are you hurt, Kitty?' he cried. She drew herself up from a trembling droop, and looked over her shoulder at him, with a face that sent him back to his company with his eyes on his feet. Fuchs, who had watched the passage between them, hummed innocently as Morphy went by. "'Rosie, you are my posy, you are my ragtime gal.' But Morphy was either too bewildered to notice it, or too weak now to resent it. The fire was not put out until midnight and for three hours afterward Company Number Zero remained at work with hooks and axes, tearing up floors and stripping walls for the last smoulder and spark of the blaze. When the final washing-down had been accomplished, and the last companies withdrew, Morphy and Pym were among those detailed to watch the wrecked rooms for any reappearance of the fire, and that was how it happened that the simple-hearted Morphy, sitting alone with Pym and a lantern in the ruins of the Slogan parlour, came to tell the sergeant the details of his love affairs, and ask his advice on the ending of them. There was this Rosie, who would not speak to him, because he had not carried her downstairs. And there was Kitty Slogan. Turned me down, he said, because I'd done just that. What was a man to make of such a tangle? Pym listened with a smile the long, slow smile of the man who sets up to be a philosopher, and takes life with a twinkle in the eye. Well, he said, when I was new to this business, I read a story about a poor young fireman, with an old mother to keep, that saved the millionaire's only daughter and married the money. And that was flare and fine skywash for the picture paper, but it was a pipe dream. 
You pick a girl out of a warm bunk and load her over your shoulder and climb out of a window with her, cussin' her cause she's pig-squealin' and cat-scratchin' and clawin' her hooks into your gills, and she won't love you any more'n if she'd never had her fingers in your mouth, not any. He turned the cud of fine cut in his cheek. Morphy pleaded, But, but, Pym said, there's another aspect of this business, and that's this. Kitty's slogan, if it's Kitty for yours, Morphy nodded eagerly enough, well, Kitty's slogan, or any other girl in this quarter, ain't going to say no to a business proposition from any man with your job. Cause why? Cause a fireman gets good pay, cause he ain't around the house, exceptin' at meals, and them he eats standin', cause he keeps steady, and when he's old he goes out on half pay, and when he don't get old, she draws his pension. That's why. If you want my advice, young man, quit your philanderin' and go to the lady with straight talk. Up and say, Sis, I got enough for two to live on. Do you want to help squander my pay? And if she don't say, You bet, I don't know no more about women than you do. And the subsequent event showed that Pym knew. End of chapter 4